So, I'm going to start with a little acknowledgement that apparently my kids don't get enough calcium in their diet. If you haven't heard, we've had a lot of broken bones in our family. Uh, specifically, it seems to be broken arms is the thing. Elliot broke his twice. He's now 13, but when he was like three and four, he broke it twice. Junior broke hers twice as well at age three and nine. And then um, seven-year-old Gwen, who FYI prefers they, them pronouns. Uh, if you've met them and seen their name tag, you might have noticed that, but otherwise, that's, that's Gwen. Um, Gwen broke their arm uh, the first time falling off a bike this fall. And then last week, at the end of this like horrible, rainy day, complete with a lice outbreak, which was the third one in a year for my family, um, a very expensive, stupid fix on our car, a visit to a tooth specialist for one of the kids who's like decay in a tooth is like so bad they need to go be referred out from the dentist. Uh, all of that happens. And then just for fun to top it off, my kids decided it'd be super fun to try to like stand on an office chair. Uh, Gwen standing on the chair while one of their siblings is spinning the chair and surprise surprise I'm off taking Gwen to the urgent care with yet another broken arm so the urgent care doc thought at first it might be small enough uh, to get away with just a splint not a full cast but told us to follow up with orthopedics so the next day I was in the pediatric orthopedist office and she wants x-rays of her own to decide how to proceed so there I am sitting with Gwen, waiting for the x-ray. And, you know, we've just had like a pretty intense 36 hours. I'm kind of running on fumes at this point. There's not a lot left. It's just kind of the like, what's the crisis right in front of me? What is needed right now? Let's deal with it. Um, and I can tell they're saying, yeah, we're going to need some x-rays. This is probably going to need a cast. Um, and I can feel Gwen's anxiety. Gwen's already been through this this year, understands what this means. We have a big trip to Disneyland planned at the end of the week. I can tell Gwen's nervous. This might interfere with that. So we're sitting there waiting for the x-rays, and I'm trying to just chat, keep, keep them entertained, keep them upbeat. And, and then all of a sudden, Gwen gives me the signal, and they hold up their hand like this. And I'm like, what are, you, what are you doing? You love me? Oh, you're, you're trying to do I love you, and you're messing it up. And, <laughs> and Gwen's like, no, shaking, her, shaking their head at me. I'm like, uh, oh, right, at school, they have this thing called quiet coyote. Okay, if you have young kids, you might have seen this. Oh, this is the quiet coyote. Are you saying quiet coyote? And Gwen nods their head. You want me to be quiet. I've been chatty to try to keep them occupied. <laughs> okay, I can be quiet. And then Gwen says, I'm trying to pray. I'm trying to pray. With all of the uh, craziness that had been going on, I was just trying to keep things moving, solve the next crisis. But Gwen wanted something that they knew mommy couldn't supply. For that, Gwen needed to pray. Well, we've been spending some time at the beginning of 2020 um, taking a look at some habits that I have been proposing maybe we would do well to cultivate or recultivate. 
um, as we seek to bring some order to our lives. A lot of us do this in January, right, the beginning of the year. We kind of think through. Things got off in the holidays. Everything was a little crazy. Maybe we ate or drank a little more than we normally would, and it's time to kind of get back in order. And as we're kind of doing that in maybe some other areas of our life, I've been pitching maybe it would, we would do well to kind of consider some habits that might be helpful to cultivate or to reactivate um, in this season as well. Habits that might bring some order and health to the life of faith. So we talked about ordering our time through Sabbath practices. We talked about um, ordering our resources, how we connect with um, sharing our resources. What does it mean um, to give away as a way of ordering our connection with the things that we're building our life around? And today I want to think together about another practice that honestly we haven't talked a lot about directly um, here for quite a while, and that is the practice of prayer. Okay, a practice that I would argue is ultimately about bringing order to our connection with God, with the divine, okay? Now, prayer was a fundamental practice in the life of Jesus, particularly in the Gospel of Luke. We see its importance, okay? Jesus is portrayed by Luke as regularly taking time to pray, particularly when something really important is happening in the same way that little Gwen knew that they needed something different, something unique in a challenging situation. Jesus, too, would take time to pray when he was in need. He prayed at his baptism. He prayed before choosing his closest followers. When the crowds were overwhelming, he pulled away to pray. Of course, he prayed all night in the Garden of Gethsemane and, according to Luke, even on the cross. Prayer was a regular habit of Jesus. And it was one that Luke shows us uh, Jesus was happy to give away to his followers. So I thought, as we consider together these habits that might be important for us to develop or to recommit to in this season, maybe it would make sense to look afresh at how Jesus shared his habit of prayer with his disciples and what he wanted them to know about it. So we're going to look together at Luke chapter 11. If you like to follow along on a handout, there's some spread throughout the room. You can grab one um, or you can just follow along on the screen. It's up to you. There's pens in the back too if you like to take notes. So one day, Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, give us each day our daily bread, forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us, and lead us not into temptation. And then Jesus said to them, suppose you have a friend. And you go to him at midnight and say, friend, lend me three loaves of bread. A friend of mine on a journey has come to me, and I have no food to offer him. And suppose the one inside answers, don't bother me. The door is already locked, and my children and I are in bed. I can't get up and give you anything. I tell you, even though he will not get up and give you the bread because of friendship, yet because of your shameless audacity, he will surely get up and give you as much as you need. So I say to you, ask, and it will be given to you. 
Seek and you will find, knock and the door will be open to you. For everyone who asks receives, the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks the door will be open. Which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Okay, so here we have Jesus sharing some teaching on this topic of prayer. And the passage, passage starts with Jesus like engaging in his habit, and one of his followers seeing him do this asks him about, asks him about it, right? Lord, teach us to pray just as John taught his disciples. And I would say Jesus' response comes in two parts. Okay, the first you could say is the mechanical. Okay, the mechanical. It's the mechanics of prayer. It's like Luke's version of what we call the Lord's Prayer is here, right? We have this like template prayer. And we're going to come back to that, right? We're going to come back to the specific prayer and what might be instructive about it in a bit. But what I'm more interested in this morning is this teaching about prayer that goes beyond the mechanics, beyond the nuts and bolts of the practice, where we move from what I would call the mechanical to the philosophical. Okay, the mechanical to the philosophical. Jesus is trying to teach them something about the very nature of prayer, a philosophy of prayer. What was Jesus's philosophy of prayer? Well, I would argue that to understand this, to understand Jesus's philosophy of prayer, we need to understand his parable, okay? To get the philosophy of prayer, it's, it's kind of hidden in this parable. And I have to be honest that the parable is tricky, okay? The meaning is not clear to us on the surface. So I'm going to try to unpack it a little bit, okay? We're going to go to seminary together a little bit. Because um, part of what makes this parable particularly challenging is that um, we need to understand the category it falls in. Okay, parables, uh, I happen to have um, my New Testament professor in seminary was a guy named Klein Snodgrass. And he was, is kind of considered one of the preeminent scholars today on the parables. Um, and he will tell you that parables all kind of fall into a few different kinds of categories, all right? They're, they're a form of speech. They're a form of story, a form of teaching, and they have specific forms kind of within the broader category, all right? And what we're looking at here is what Klein would call an interrogative parable, okay? An interrogative parable. That really means that the parable functions as an extended question. The parable is an extended question, okay? You following me? But the problem for us is we don't see the question in our contemporary translations, okay? The question has been hidden from us. Inst instead of seeing an extended question, we see like a hypothetical situation. That's what the translators give us. But to really frame this parable that way really misses the thrust of how it's supposed to work. Okay, we miss kind of how the parable is meant to land. The parable's really framed as a question. So what's the question? Well, our translations start, and this is really true of kind of any contemporary English translation you look at. They're all going to start with something like, suppose you have dot, dot, dot. 
Suppose you have a friend, right, is the way we have it. But the actual parable begins with a phrase in Greek that is a prompt in a question, and it means in English, literally, who from you? Okay, tis ex hymen is the, is the Greek, but we'll talk about it just in English. Who from you? And we would probably more likely say something like, which of you, you in a group, who among you would do X, Y, Z? Which of you would do this or that? Okay? This is the prompt for this parable we're looking at. The longer question he's asking is pretty complicated. Okay? I do feel a lot of sympathy for the translators because we don't like sentences this long in contemporary English. If, but if we were going to write this the way that it was delivered, it would say something like a who from you at the top, and it would have a question mark at the end, and there would be like three verses in the middle. Does that make sense? Who from you at the top of verse 5, question mark at the end of verse 7. And so I have a paraphrase from my friend Klein. He says it would go something like this. Okay, who from you will have a friend, and he will go to him in the middle of the night and say to him, friend, let me three loaves since my friend came to me from the road, and I have nothing which I may place before him. And that one inside would answer, don't bother me. Already the door has been closed, and my children are with me in bed. I'm, I'm not able, having risen, to give you anything. Question mark. That's the question. Okay? You can kind of understand why they didn't phrase it that way, right? Because it's a long question. But it matters. Because the question uh, implies an answer. And when we don't have the question, we don't understand how it's supposed to land. OK, so some of you might have been listening this week, if you're news nerds like me, to uh, these impeachment trial days. And if you were listening, you might have heard these questions that were being posed, right, from the various senators to the teams of lawyers on both sides. And if you listen to any of those questions, you wouldn't have to listen very long to get the sense that a lot of these questions aren't really questions designed to gather new information, right? They're not questions trying to get more details to complete the picture. They're what you would call leading questions, right? They're often questions designed to prompt a particular response or to make a point. Right? They're kind of statements posed as questions, often. Right? And honestly, this is the way Jesus is questioning his listeners. There's a response that is supposed to be implied from this question. He's asking them this extended question to set up a particular response. Okay? It's the same kind of technique these guys were using, and women, in the Senate. Every time Jesus would ask a who from you hypothetical question, it was intended to set up this obvious answer that all of Jesus' listeners would, of course, get. Who from you would do all this and be turned away? Question mark. And the answer is no one. That's always the answer. No one. That would never happen. It's inconceivable. It's, it's, nobody could even imagine it. Of course that would never happen. A who, a who from you dot, 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 parable, always sets up an impossible scenario to imagine. And the answer is always no one. No one would do that. So why is it no one? 
How does that even make sense? Why would the answer be that if Jesus' followers would go to a friend in the middle of the night, they should expect that that friend would definitely get up and give them bread at midnight? What? Why? Because that's, that's, not, that's not obvious to me, right? This, again, is where our cultural dissonance, like our distance from the text, can make it hard to really understand what's happening. But this parable, Jesus was speaking it to a specific people in a specific time with a specific culture, right? It's rooted in assumptions of that culture. And the culture in which Jesus lived, people felt a very strong responsibility for hospitality. And shame and honor played significant roles in how people lived out that sense of responsibility. There were codes that you needed to abide to kind of be in society. Now, inns in Jesus' day, those were shady places. Okay, they were not very common. There weren't a lot of them, and they were often associated with corruption and crime. So when a traveler was traveling, they generally tried to depend on the hospitality of their friends or acquaintances, a family member of a family member. To have a guest come to your house and to not host them, <coughs> to not give them a place to sleep and a, and a meal to eat, that was considered a very shameful thing. There is a responsibility you assume if a traveler comes to you. You need to host them. And if you have a friend who needs help hosting a traveler, then of course you're going to help them. Even if that person rudely wakes you up at midnight, which definitely was considered rude. Jesus says it's shameless audacity. But of course they would get what they needed. Those assumptions are built into this parable. Okay, so do we kind of understand what the parable is asking? We're still left with this question, what does this metaphor, thank you, of rudely waking someone up in the middle of the night to get bread for a guest, what does that have to do with prayer? Are we saying God is like a cranky old man who's annoyed with us, but of course he's going to get up and give us what we need? Is that, is that what we're supposed to assume? No. To better understand how this and other who from you parables function, I think it helps to look forward a little bit at some of the other metaphors Jesus uses, Jesus uses to help his listeners understand prayer, okay? Because he has some other who from you's in there. It's like he's building this setup. Okay, he starts with this one about the friend at midnight. But then he gives us some other ridiculous questions to kind of further the point. Which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? So here we have another who from you. We have a couple of them. And the key to unlock their meaning comes in the last sentence. The how much more, dot, 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 okay? Who from you parables function not by setting up an example and saying, this is what God is like, right? They function by setting up a contrast, okay? They say, if this is how you would respond, 
how much better does the divine respond? Does that make sense? The divine is beyond you. God is wiser than you. God is more loving than you. God's more able to control their emotion, more constant, more thoughtful than you. So if even you, human, evil compared to God, even you who struggles with your temper, who's, who's prone to disinformation, who can be rash, not very thoughtful, speak things he or she doesn't really mean in the heat of the moment, if even you know better than to give your child a snake instead of a fish or a scorpion instead of an egg, how much more can you expect that the divine parent knows how to give you good things? Or back to our original parable, if you humans can trust, you're going to get a positive response for your need, even when you ask it rudely in the middle of the night. How much more can you trust that the divine is ready and willing to respond to you when you ask? Essentially, again and again, Jesus is saying, it's good. It's good to ask. It's good to go to God in need. Ask, seek, knock on the door. Go ahead. You don't have to be afraid. You don't have to justify your longing. God is ready and willing to hear from you. So why is Jesus telling them this? Why is this the response to his friends as they say they want to model his habit? As I see it, this philosophy of prayer Jesus is presenting, it's answering an unspoken question. This is something I think Jesus is really good at, answering the question beneath the question, right? Answering the thing that his listeners didn't actually ask or state, but you can tell by the way they behave, he picks up on something, why they're really asking what they're asking, right? And I think to be honest, that many of us can relate to what I think perhaps is the question beneath the question. And that question goes something like this. Does God care about my prayer? Does God actually care about my prayer? It's so simple, but so fundamental. If I pray, does it actually make a difference? Will the divine respond? Will the heart at the center of the universe actually be moved in any way because I prayed? I mean, that's really what it all comes down to. While the disciples don't express this insecurity about it directly, I think we get a sense of it in the way they ask Jesus for help. Teach us to pray like John taught his disciples, right? He did it for them. You should do it for us. It's like they feel this need to justify to Jesus why they need this information, right? To me, this speaks of an insecurity. It's like a fear that maybe someone else has the corner on this whole prayer thing. Maybe someone else might be praying in a way that God actually cares about. Maybe someone else has this key to unlock heaven's blessings. But unless I get that secret, unless I understand the recipe where I have that like particular spiritual gift, I might miss out. And Jesus is saying, you don't need to be so insecure. God cares. God cares about your prayer. God cares about your prayer because God cares about you. God cares about connecting with you. 
God is eager to respond to prayer because prayer is the mechanism by which the human heart and the divine heart can connect. So what is it that Jesus says God's eager to give to those who pray? Ultimately, it isn't stuff. That's not the central piece, although certainly I do think God cares about our provision. Jesus says to ask for daily bread. But ultimately, prayer is not a magical formula. It's not a genie's lamp that you rub in order to produce a certain outcome. God isn't eagerly waiting to give you the 49ers winning the Super Bowl. It's the Holy Spirit. That's what he says. It's the Holy Spirit. Jesus says God is eager to give the Holy Spirit to those who ask. God is eager to give the divine presence to those who turn to the divine for comfort, for solace, for wisdom, for help. Two weeks ago, we talked about this idea, uh, this metaphor of perhaps faith being a centered set kind of endeavor, right? I have this image. What if we are all these little dots going all these different kinds of directions and the divine is that center dot and our goal in the, in the life of faith is simply to be about turning our arrow from some other direction or to be oriented around something else to that, that dot of the divine, that sacred heart at the center of the universe. What if that is really the goal of faith, okay? And if that metaphor holds any truth, then perhaps the Holy Spirit is the dynamic force that helps us navigate the journey. That means it's not just all on us to figure it out, right? It's like a gravitational pull that pulls us in the right direction. The Holy Spirit perhaps is the invisible tie between our little dot and that divine one. And maybe we think about prayer as being a way in which we kind of grab onto that invisible tie right? We, we actually activate our connection. We allow that invisible bond to pull us back on course. We allow it to pull us deeper into its center. What if that really is all prayer at its core is about? I think God cares about your prayer because God cares about connecting with you. I believe that's the heart of this philosophy of prayer Jesus is trying to communicate, that he cares about bringing you closer, that they care about you feeling that you're not alone, that God wants to speak into your unsettledness, your fear, your insecurity, your frustration, your anger, your grief, your loneliness, with a hopeful love that is constant and secure and allow that divine presence that Jesus calls that Holy Spirit to shape your thoughts, your desires, your sense of need, your sense of purpose, so that they might be aligned with something beyond yourself or your fickle culture, to help you have a heart that looks more like that divine heart at the center. This is what I think Jesus wanted his followers to understand about prayer. It's not about convincing God you're worthy of whatever it is you think you need. 
God already sees you that way. I'm going to sum it up like this. Prayer is about coming into God's presence so that you can experience yourself as fully loved and valued by the divine. And you can allow that knowledge to shape who you are, how you live, and what you need. Do you hear me? I'm going to say it one more time. Prayer is about coming into God's presence so that you can experience yourself as fully loved and valued by the divine, and you can allow that knowledge to shape who you are, how you live, and what you need. So there have been a number of studies by scientists trying to assess the scientific validity of prayer. Can we prove scientifically that prayer really does anything? And the answer is no and yes. Okay? If you're looking for a, some scientific validation that because people pray for a certain outcome, it's more likely to happen, that's pretty hard to come by. Okay? Studies of people praying in medical situations generally don't show enough of a clear, measurable, consistent benefit for it to be called scientifically validated. Okay? That doesn't mean I'm saying you shouldn't be praying for specific things. But it's just real that if you're looking to science to validate its accuracy, we, can't, we don't have that data. But there is another area of scientific inquiry that consistently shows a very measurable benefit of prayer. And that's the benefit of prayer on the brain of the person who prays. So there's this author and podcaster um, some of us listen to from the Liturgist podcast. And this guy is named Mike McCarg. He's a science nerd. He's called Science Mike on the podcast. And um, he himself has gone through a journey coming from evangelical faith, raised in evangelical faith, a journey to atheism as a young adult, and then eventually to reclaiming a very different flavor, I think he would say, of Jesus-centered faith. And a lot of his work, like his own spiritual journey, uh, centers around bridging gaps between faith and science, okay? And he has a book about this um, called Finding God in the Waves. It's a memoir as well as like an exploration of some of these questions. And in the book, Mike spends quite a bit of time examining the part of our brain that experiences connection and relationships. And he talks about how people of faith have what's called a God network, of neurological connections that are built up over time. And people who've never actually spent much time trying to connect spiritually, their brains just look a bit different. They don't have this particular network of, of kind of neurological connections. Now, what I find particularly interesting is that this kind of research shows that it really does matter what kind of an image of God you have. All right, it matters who you think you are connecting to. So for those of us who believe that God is a very strong authoritarian, prone to anger, what we might summarize as like an angry God, that belief creates a brain under stress. Okay, it leads to a brain that angers more easily. It leads to a brain that it becomes difficult to forgive others, to forgive yourself, uh, becomes difficult, it allows you to become fearful of anything or anyone that's different than you. 
and often to, uh, to push those things away. However, for those who express faith in what, they would, what you would call a loving God, we see the opposite effect. We develop areas of the brain that bring better focus, concentration, compassion, empathy. We see lower stress levels and blood pressure. It's easier for brains, um, for those people with these kind of brains to forgive themselves. It's easier to forgive others. And it's been shown that these positive effects help counteract stress and distraction in the modern world. So how does this happen? How do folks cultivate this positive image of God? According to science, the best practices are prayer and meditation. Neurologically speaking, prayer is considered a type of meditation. It produces similar brain activity, long -term, similar long-term effects. So both Buddhist monks and Christian nuns show the same effect in a brain scan while praying or meditating. Okay? They both show what's called decreased parietal lobe activity. That means the part of your brain that's more attached to like the circumstances that are happening right now, it kind of shuts down. So folks who pray and meditate regularly are able to kind of experience leaving this reality. They're able to kind of shut out some of this and connect with something more transcendent. Mike describes it this way in his book. The study's main finding was that prayer and meditation are so similar in the brain, we can describe prayer as a type of meditation. And this should be encouraging because research shows that meditation is one of the best things you can do for your brain, right up there with reading and physical exercise. Meditation lowers your blood pressure, helps you feel less stressed. It fosters emotional healing. It has even been found to help the body cope with disease. And these effects are so pronounced, some studies have found meditation to have a therapeutic effect on people suffering from dementia. In the case of people who meditate on a loving God, the idea of God becomes part of how they process reality. And this has profound effects on their behavior. When you believe God loves you and loves others, it's easier to take risks and to forgive people it's not enough to simply believe in God because only prayer and meditation will turn that belief into a neural network that changes your outlook and behavior. Even when the news cycle is depressing or a situation in your life seems hopeless, you can hold on to the knowledge that God is with you and the overall arc of life will work out for good. Most remarkable to me, he says, is the fact that regular prayer can work for anyone, regardless of their religious background. Even people who self-identify as atheists are likely to report feeling close to God if they pray or meditate consistently for six weeks. That's interesting. It's good for us. It's good for our brain. It's a, a positive habit for our overall health for us to meditate or pray to a loving God. And it matters that we connect with a loving one and not an angry one. I wonder if that might be what Jesus was sensing from his followers who approached him in that competitive way, wanting to know how to pray like John's followers did. Perhaps he sensed their fear of the authoritarian God. Perhaps he sensed they thought faith was a zero-sum game in which there are winners and losers, and he wanted his followers to understand and connect with a God who loved them, who's for them, was eager to give God's self to them because he understood the power that has to shape us, even our brains. 
Now, I have to admit, Mike's description of a brain that believes in an angry God, remember, like brain under stress, more reactionary, more prone to anger, harder to forgive, that feels familiar to me. It feels like what a lot of Facebook has felt like for the last three years. Okay, It feels like what it's like to be alert and alive in the era of Trump. It just does to me. I may not believe God is an angry, fickle authoritarian, but I do feel a sense of helplessness at times before one. I feel my brain under stress. I feel my brain more prone to anger on a particularly outrageous day, more judgmental. And I see these effects in my friends, in others around me too. I don't think I'm alone. Perhaps now, more than ever, I need to discipline myself. I need to develop more habits of shutting off the news, closing my Facebook feed, and reconnecting with a different center if I don't want to become the thing that is looming large in my mind, if I don't want my brain to pattern itself in that way, I need a different model to connect with. I need to be shaped by a loving presence that is for me, that is with me, that will endure. Amen? Prayer is my way of coming into God's presence so I can experience myself as fully loved and valued by the divine and allow that knowledge to shape who I am, how I live, and what I need. In their own way, it's what Gwen was doing at the doctor's office. In the face of something scary, they were receiving divine presence in the face of fear, and I believe God wants that kind of consolation for all of us. So... If that's true, how do we start? I just want to end with a couple suggestions for how we cultivate this habit of health. First, it's easy. Just find a routine that works for you. There are so many ways of praying. We could talk about one every service this year and not get through them all, okay? It's not a magic formula. There's not only one right way. There are many ways to pray, which is good. There's many kinds of people and personalities. What works for you might not be what works for me. Feel free to experiment if this is something that you've struggled with. Try something new. I'm just going to give you a few ideas, but there are more. Okay? Find a partner or a group to pray with. It's really helpful to have others to do this with and not on your own. Okay, this is a beautiful thing that's happened this year. Connie and Sylvia have become prayer partners. It has been lovely to see how that has developed. They always invite others into, into the prayer as well. Now the time is a little later on uh, 8 o'clock on week morning, weekday mornings, and they have a Zoom call that people can join and pray either through the phone or through your computer. Or uh, Thursday nights, now we're doing an evening call, 7th, the Thursday after a Haven service, so like this coming Thursday, 7.30 p.m., you could get online, you could pick up your phone and call in and have a few people to pray with. But it doesn't have to be that. You could grab somebody here. You could talk to us about helping you find a partner or a small group. We would love to help facilitate that, um, helping people find ways to partner with other people. If you're a writer, try journaling. That can be a great way to experience prayer. If you are a runner or you like to take walks as part of just your 
other habits of health. Consider activating prayer as a component. Some of us, it's really helpful to have a prompt. It's really helpful to have something to kind of show us what to pray. Uh, so I would recommend working with a prayer book. Uh, specifically, the Divine Hours is really great. It's, uh, it leads you through different prayers that you can pray throughout the day at different times. These, this is kind of entering into what those Catholic nuns and monks were doing for centuries. And they really did figure out something about how to do it well. So I'm happy to connect you, with you uh, to get, you know, for you to find the Divine Hours if you need help. Or Book of Common Prayer is all, another good one. Um, <coughs> silent meditation or centering prayer. These are super helpful, particularly if you find yourself kind of being easily distracted. It's a good discipline to develop. Um, and so we're actually going to try a little centering prayer so you can see what that's like before we end. Um, and then finally, sing your prayers. That is part of what we're trying to do here with musical worship. Okay, it's something that is continuing to evolve. The leaders here at Haven, we're talking about how do we grow in musical worship. But at its core, it's an opportunity to sing our connection with the divine. So if that's a helpful way, then let that be your routine. Whatever routine you find, whatever works for you, consider trying to, this is my second tip, incorporate the elements of Jesus' prayer. Okay? It's not just a formula but it's a helpful template, okay? Not every prayer is going to catch every category, but if we try to kind of incorporate these over time into our prayer vocabulary, I think it's helpful. So let me just break it down, what I see here when I look at this Lord's Prayer. First, consider who you pray to. Consider who you pray to. That's the Father, hallowed be your name. Worship, adoration, connects us with the identity of the one we're praying to. The loving parent, totally unique, beyond our little dramas. That's what we're saying. Invite divine activity. That's the your kingdom come. Inviting God's activity in the world. Name what you need today. Give us each day our daily bread. Asking for those practical needs. What we need here and now. Confess where you're getting off track. That's the forgive us our sins. I'm, I recognize my arrows drifting another way. I want to bring it back in line. Number five, get help with compassion. This is that as we forgive those who sin against us, we need the compassionate heart of God. We're inviting that for ourselves. And number six, seek discernment. This is the lead us not into temptation. Help us not get off track. Help keep us focused on the center we're trying to navigate to. Ultimately, God cares about our prayer particularly in a world where we are surrounded by earthly leaders who might care little about our voices or our needs, where we feel like our voice is under threat, where we feel ignored, maybe like we have to fight for what matters to us. This is good news, that God cares about our prayers. We have a God who is listening, a divine heart who's moved on our behalf, a loving one who wants to give us what we need, for hope, comfort, and meaning in a cynical world. So may we all receive this gift being offered as we order our connection with the one who is eager to give themselves to us. Amen. <laughs>